Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hi, I'm Paul Reese Mendel. And I'm Eric Klein. We've got World College Radio Day coming up on October 6, 2023. And in honor of that, we're going to dig into the history of college radio on today's episode. It should be no surprise to Radio Survivor listeners that I'm a huge college radio fan and a chronicler of college radio history. And in particular, I like to remind people that college radio stretches back to the earliest days of radio. I've been doing more research about the early days of college radio and was excited to present a paper on that very topic this past spring at the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference at the Library of Congress. We're going to talk about some of that research today and also about what the future holds for college radio. So excited to be back with you both again, two weeks in a row, Eric and Paul. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's Jennifer, it's it's always good to be here with you on Radio Survivor to learn more about college radio from you. It, you know, it's an old, it's a cliche here on Radio Survivor at this point, but but there was, there was, college radio was not getting the credit it deserved in the landscape of radio history uh, until you shone, shone a light on it. It feels like that for me at least, right? I, I found out how important college radio was to the whole history of radio, um, learning from you and then finding out uh, all all about that history from the other experts you've brought on to Radio Survivor. So it's it's always fun to talk college radio uh, with Jennifer Waits. So you mean that college radio had was important before they uh, discovered the cure in Nirvana? <laughs> I know it's crazy, isn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like before I'm always, the eighties. <laughs> I feel like I'm always battling that stereotype of, um, you know. Oh yeah, college radio started in the 1980s and you know, um and you know, so I I'm interested in the entirety of the history of college radio, but after going to a college that had a student radio station that started in 1923, that really opened my eyes that college radio had a much uh deeper history, went further back than than most people realize. So now I feel like I'm this cheerleader, this constantly reminding people, like, don't forget about the 1920s. Um, you know, because even when college radio histories were written, um, you know, decades ago, there was a, a book written about campus radio, carrier current radio that started in the late 30s. And they didn't even give much attention to the 1920s. It's like it, that era just got completely erased. Yeah. So it... That, that really has gotten into my craw, and it's like probably the most difficult period of college radio history to research. So, of course, I decided to take that on for this paper that I gave at the Library of Congress. And, you know, it's there's no one source for information. You have to really dig into a whole bunch of different places to get these tiny little anecdotes about what was happening amongst students at that time. And, and that's my passion is student run stations and student led efforts in radio. There's been a lot of great research about how public radio is really, um, you know, but the deep history of public radio stretches back to radio activities on college campuses. But a lot of those stations were, um, you know, efforts more of the adults <laughs> versus the kids. Um, and, and so Kind of like when I when I started writing about college radio on my blog, Spinning Indie, I 
I started writing these profiles. I did this 50 state tour series where I was profiling stations in every state. And often I would look for stations that were under the radar, more like the underdog stations that not everybody was writing about because I like to, you know, kind of share that college radio comes in all shapes and sizes. And it, we don't have to always write about um, the stations that have the huge wattages and that are in big cities. You know, I think it's interesting to to look into some of these niche stations too. So that's kind of why, you know, this emphasis on student run stations in the 1920s and student radio activity. But of in course, that time, you know, I mean, you cited it yourself that this is difficult research to do, right? So I think we can, we can sort of forgive the myopia, right? Because of the fact that it is not well documented. And I think college radio sits at a, at a funny place, right? Because, you know, is there someone writing the history? Maybe they are of, uh, you know, college acapella groups. Is there somebody writing the, the history of uh, college, uh, you know, you know, internal drama clubs, right? Chess club. You know, chess clubs, right? And maybe somebody is, but often I'm sure they don't get their due either, right? Because, you know, often they're extremely opaque to anyone who's not on a campus. And college students, of course, spend, you know, on average four years at the activity at best, and then they move on. And you're so busy doing who's got time to document, who's got time to write about it, or or do any sort of, of documentation. And even, you know, we think, oh, there would be websites and such. Well, that, you know, these days, that's ephemeral. I mean, they get changed, and, and there's maybe no record of that website as existed 5, 10, 15 years ago. Radio is a little different because so many of these stations are intended to be heard off campus at, at some point, not all of them, Right, not all of them, as, as we may talk about a little bit later, but so many of them are, and they have that sort of more public, private kind of, they straddle that line in a way that I think um, a lot of other activities on a college campus don't. Um, and but but you know I think probably the only thing that's probably more well documented are you know yearbooks and newspapers simply because they're not ephemera in the same way because they're fixed into physical objects that usually get saved somewhere on campus or end up in somebody's file folder somewhere. Right. Which so, I so imagine, I guess I, yeah, there's probably a, a, um, the most rich source to mine for information about college radio, especially in the twenties would probably be student newspapers. Oh, who might definitely. cross the hall <laughs> yes. and cover themselves, you know, cover their, their, their classmates and your books. And often yeah. some of the people doing radio were also, involved with the newspaper or the yearbook and sometimes editor-in-chief i feel like i found this mm -hmm. i feel like i've seen this multiple times um but paul i think makes an interesting point about you know the radio stations college radio stations that maybe could be heard off campus versus those that were really only heard on campus and i think that complicates some of the histories that we read of college radio too um you know in some cases those campus only stations are are kind of ignored, you know, because it's not part of this bigger narrative. Um, but I, I like to think of them as being all part of the same story, even though, 
you know, even though there are obvious differences, even if you're a camp, even if you were a campus only radio station in the 1980s, you still had interactions off campus with the music industry. Like you might have been reporting to CMJ Music Journal, you might have been going to conventions, you may have had connections with your local record shop. So there were still, they still weren't, you know, completely, um, they, they still had connections off campus in a way that maybe some other student organizations had less um, intersection with, you know, the broader, broader community. So, so for this, you know, I, the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference, this most recent one was supposed to be in 2020, and it was going to be kind of this, um, you know, if you think of 1920 as one of the key dates in radio that some people might say was the beginning of commercial radio, but highly debatable. Um, so, you know, it was exciting to have that as a centennial conference. Um, but then with the pandemic, it got pushed to, to um, 2023. And for me, I was excited because that meant it was the 100th anniversary of the launch of the first student station at my college at Haverford. So, I think that was even more impetus for me to kind of reflect back on on these hundred years and and Haverford's wasn't the first college radio station, but it was certainly one of the very early completely student run student built initiatives. So it was students who were already radio amateurs before they came to campus. And, you know, they were part of this radio club that ended up building the station and after four years, they were the ones that decided to sell the station too. So it was a total student enterprise. And so that's that's kind of my big research area is to find more and more of these very student focused stations from the twenties. And I haven't found all that many because it's so, you have to research kind of station by station. Um, but I think it's really, inspiring to hear these stories and to you know be reminded of of what students can do and it's the case today too and 100 years later uh, when i meet students who are running their college radio stations it's very inspiring so i think a lot of times people who are outside of a college community might might not realize kind of the the level um, at which students are involved with student clubs and the things that they're doing and the risks they're taking the experiments they're doing um it's it's very inspiring well the 1920s you know we have to take into account radio was experimental in many ways um broadcast voice radio in particular right because radio not very soon before that was only telegraph essentially um but you know also, you know, we're talking about radio in terms of voice radio would have been only um, in the AM band, um, which, and you would have been using tube-based equipment, which in many cases was difficult to assemble. Probably they were assembling these transmitters in many cases themselves, homebrewing them because they were uh, experienced as hams, as, as amateur radio enthusiasts. There was not a robust market of off-the-shelf transmitters as there would be today. Um, AM radio also, if you're broadcasting at any amount of, of power, uh, can require some space for the antenna. 
can you know overall like there's there are many i think uh technical and probably just monetary capital challenges to having a radio station in the 1920s that would be very different uh, from from 40 years later, from say the 1960s into the 1970s, that we have to kind of take into account. Is probably one reason why you have difficulty finding uh, these stations. Is that you know, it, it, I wonder how many actually did exist or would exist given these particular challenges, and and to what extent, because this was a period of in which radio was lightly regulated. <laughs> compared to uh, after 1934 and the, and the Communications Act. Um, not that it, it was not fully unregulated at that time, but the regulations were different. You know, I'm, I'm certain it's sort of uh, looking at unlicensed radio, there's probably, it's similar to that. It, there's probably stations that are not, are simply barely documented at all because they may have been operating with a limited degree of authorization for, from you know either federal authorities or or perhaps even campus authorities right and there were uh and i don't have the number on hand at the moment but um there's a pretty large number of licensed college radio stations in the 1920s um but some of those were only in the air for a few months too so you also have that mm -hmm. part of the equation where you know you had stations that um, didn't exist for a long period of time um but while I was doing research for this presentation, I really started to dig into amateur radio because at Haverford, there were sort of simultaneous things happening. There was an amateur radio club and the radio station, the broadcast station grew out of that. Can, um, can you can you define amateur radio? Because I'm, I'm, I, you know, we're talking about it here and, and you know, someone hearing it and is not familiar with it may think, well, that is that just someone who's doing radio and not paid for it, right? So, yeah. but it's actually, a, it's a class of radio. And I think probably specifically as you, as we try to distinguish between sort of amateur radio and college radio, it's important to draw that line. Yeah. So in the amateur radio clubs, um, students were doing experiments and a, a lot of the club focused on doing communication with other radio stations. So it was like point to point communication where you would try to talk to somebody else. I mean, more like a telephone uh, or a ham well, radio. I mean, I think amateur radio by definition cannot be broadcast, meaning yeah. I think it's only for point to point communication, not to not just full monopolizing a frequency for technically, a time. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, technically, yeah, technically. Yes. Um, so when you read about some of these early radio clubs on campuses, they were teaching each other how to um, do Morse code. They were offering to send messages to people across the land or across the country. Um, and it was those kinds of experiments. And at Haverford, so they were doing things like that. Um, and it was through that club that they did an international chess match by radio with Oxford in the 1920s. Um, but at the same time, the club also launched as a in Oxford in England. Yeah, <laughs> Oxford University in, in across the pond, as they say in England. Yes, just want to draw that out. Not Oxford, Mississippi, or Oxford, Ohio. Yeah, they were written up in the New York Times, and it was thought to be the first intercollegiate, you know, interoceanic chess match by radio. You always have to get very specific in your first claims, and. So they were doing that, but they were also they also built a broadcast station that was licensed by the FCC over AM WABQ. 
so it's interesting. It was interesting to me to think about, and I realized I had to really kind of tease out a lot of stuff. Um, I visited Union College, uh, and that was, we talked about that on one of our episodes, and I wrote a station tour of Union College in Schenectady, New York, and and they they say they're the first college radio station, which is debatable, but um, their first broadcasts were actually over amateur radio. And the licensing is all very confusing when you go back and try to trace it all, but they did um, they did broadcasts using music, you know, to a larger community that were done over amateur radio rather than over a licensed broadcast station. And, and did a lot of really cool, interesting experiments and broadcast things like music for the prom. Um, so people like off campus could hear the music from the prom. So when I started finding stories like this, I was very intrigued and, and just started thinking about, well, what is college radio? You know, and, and we've seen that college radio has taken many forms, like and a streaming only internet radio station could be a college radio station, a station that's broadcasting over cable TV in the 1980s. That could be a college radio station um, and on and on and on. So, so why couldn't one of these experimental amateur stations that doesn't have an FCC license for broadcasting, like shouldn't that count too, especially if they're doing these things that really do seem like broadcasts where many people are listening. So that that became kind of a kernel of this paper. And I started thinking about how radio clubs like at Haverford and at Union College, that they're really predecessors to what we understand to be college radio. And, you know, amateur radio stations do still exist on college campuses. And and for many years, they've operated in parallel with these broadcast stations. So, you know, these are, today you would see these as very separate communities, you know, very different types of people often um, working at these different sorts of stations. But in the 1910s, the 1920s, I think it's pretty interesting to see where that amateur work really blurred and helped to incubate student-led broadcast stations, you know, like we saw at Haverford and at at Union College, which Union College did eventually have a short-lived broadcast station early on too. Um, so, so I wanted to restore that history and then, you know, started digging in a bit more to find out what was happening even before that time, because we had radio experiments happening on college campuses starting in the late 1800s. And, and often those were done by professors in, in academic departments like physics. Um, and students would play a role in that radio work and, and even build stations. Um, and then, you know, soon after that, you started seeing some radio clubs, first radio clubs. And so I did some digging around in the radio community because like there's, you know, a lot of amazing people doing all kinds of research about the early days. Um, and Bob Ridzweski at the California Historical Radio Society shared some really cool research with me about um, uh, that was related to um, Robert F. Gowan, 
uh, who's a radio pioneer and he was a chief engineer for Lee DeForest, this Robert F. Gowan guy. Um, and who and, is Lee DeForest? Why is that an important name? Lee DeForest. Well, Paul, maybe you maybe you have a better quick elevator pitch <laughs> summation. I mean, it's very important to vacuum technology and vacuum tubes. I can tell you that. And he he worked building early radio stations. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you have more to say on Lee DeForest. Yeah, I mean, he's often called the father of radio as well, though that's often... Uh, you know, sort of a contemporary of uh, of Marconi, um, had his own, you know, company, the DeForest Radio and Telegraph Company. And so, you know, as well worked in broadcast. So, you know, and again, as, as you say, it's always hard to, to truly isolate the first. So many of these things happen. So many people in so many different organizations may be working on the same thing around the same time. Yeah. Hence why it's difficult to identify the, uh, the first uh college radio station difficult to say who is the true father of radio but lita forest is certainly uh uh you know often uh cited in that same in that same pantheon so so this chief engineer for lita forest robert f gowan um uh bob ridsweski of the california historical radio society told me that gowan started what may have been the first college radio club in the country at Harvard's Weld Hall around 1906. And so then I dug in a bit more. He shared some resources with me. And, and there was a 1909 issue of the Harvard Illustrated Magazine that talked about these dorm-based wireless activities. And that article said, finally, it became more convenient to call a fellow up by wireless and ask if he intended going to town than to walk across the yard on a personal visit. So it's um it's similar to kind of what you hear about later we'll maybe talk about this later in the today and on the podcast about carrier current radio that's kind of the origin of carrier current radio is people wanting to just sort of chat with people in another dorm room across campus um and so here at at harvard students did some rogue experiments with wireless telegraphy from their dorm rooms and then they formed they formed this company called the Weld Phone Phone Up Terograph Company of Harvard University. It's just very grand. Um, the name means to write with winged sounds, and it was conceived of by a student in the dorm Weld Hall, who was doing graduate studies in Greek. So anyway, it's just amazing. And Gowan wrote um, a 1923 article in Radio News about this and saying the club offered wireless messages to all parts of the yard and vicinity and that gradually stations sprang up in the different dormitories. And Ridzweski said that their enthusiasm may have resulted in Harvard instituting its first radio class. So kind of interesting to me that that is an example of students innovation driving curriculum. Um, and, and, you know, and I don't, I hadn't heard really these stories about student radio clubs. So to me, this was was really interesting. And there's so many parallels, I think, with college radio stations. So that's why it's, I think it's important to bring together the stories of amateur radio and broadcast radio. A um, couple years after that, in 1908, there was a wireless telegraph club at Columbia that was launched by students at Columbia University. and 
there was an article in 1908 talking about 300 foot long wires strung 100 feet above the ground, adding that school officials were skeptical at first about letting them erect the wires for fear of disfiguring the classic beauty of the university. <laughs> But despite that, I mean, something that, that exists to this day that, that, yeah. that people will complain about radio antennas in that way. Yeah. Um, but despite all that, the professors in the electrical engineering department admitted that there was a need for wireless telegraphy coursework to be added to the curriculum. So, you know, similar to what happened at Harvard, it's like, okay, like the students are on to something, uh, you know, we need to get with the program. I mean, I, I think we can see shadows of that today. I mean, if we think about, you know, Facebook being born basically by student at Harvard, right? For, for, for better or worse, right? We have many of these stories of different innovations, say the first, uh, you know, truly popular and practical web browser. Mosaic was built, you know, at the University of Illinois, essentially by students, by graduate students. Um, you know, and I, I don't think that these are isolated instances I, I think if we were to, if we were to do some concentrated study on this idea of technological innovation on college campuses that that were in many cases forged by the students themselves i suspect there were faculty involved or administrators involved in some way as well right i think very rarely is anyone operating in in, in true isolation but I'm, I'm certainly willing to to buy that the students were the uh, were the ones really pressing forward, right? The ones who, you know, being young and, and you know, young people in 1908 are, are, I suspect in many ways, not so different than young people today, um, or when I was a young person, uh, and, and having a lot of boundless energy and, and, and get up and go and wanting, you know, to, 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 to make something new and, and push the boundaries. I mean, this is, this sounds like the story that, that I'm, I'm seeing here, the meta story through all of this. And so we, you know, while it took you a while to, to, to find the threads, we shouldn't be surprised that they're there. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and, and some of this I think is, you know, going back to Union College, you know, this idea that they started a station in 1920, or, you know, first radio station in 1920, or first broadcast in 1920. But it was where's Union College? Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, so, New York. Like you said that, yes. Thank near you. General Electric, which is not um, insignificant. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we look at these first claims, um, you see a lot of people kind of tearing apart that first claim, like, well, it wasn't a broadcast station, you know? So I think, again, like at the beginning, I talked about I'm interested in these underdog stations. So it's like, well, okay, it wasn't the first licensed broadcast station, but why, why can't we be telling these really interesting stories about these things that are, you know, like proto broadcasts. Um, and so actually, I want to talk a little bit about that now at Union College, just to give you a little more color. So, you know, I found some of these examples of these radio clubs in 1906, 1908, they're probably more. Um, and we start to see more and more radio clubs being formed at various colleges, Union College, they form a radio club in 1915. And so October 14th, 1920, students broadcast a short concert of music over the radio. And the student newspaper writes about it saying, if for the next week you hear noise a thunder every time you try to phone, you know the electric jazz experts are tuning up. And they are some <laughs> jazz experts with high power spark discharges. Starting next Thursday night, the radio club will give a concert via radio. 
this will be a weekly habit. If at some future time you have a dance on hand and your jazz artists fail you, call up to ADD, tell them your trouble, and, you've, and if you've got a hairpin, a wire, a coil or two, and a phone, you will have all the music you wish via radio. So I'm trying to, to kind of unpack that a little bit. And, and I and what I and, and what I'm having difficulty understanding is that are they implicating that on the actual wired telephone you might be getting interference from this high-powered broadcast, or is the phone uh, the wireless itself? It's I don't know. <laughs> or are they <laughs> are they confused? <laughs> Maybe they don't know how. So calling it's up to work. ADD. Is that a telephone number or is that? Oh, those are the those are the those are the amateur letters for the station. Okay, so that was the call letters. Okay, so then perhaps you know perhaps it is the case that already at Union College by 1920 uh, there were like like is explained at at Harvard and such dorm radios uh, and and so somebody was monopolizing the. Um, uh, the airspace it's hard yeah it's, it's this is very think, interesting with yeah. having, not having a lot of other um context to go on the way i mean the way i read it is maybe these are some of the tools that you would use to construct your listening apparatus so um, sure and then maybe there's interference on dorm phones that's how i'm reading all of that yeah um there's hairpin a wire and a coil or two that they're basically describing making a uh a, a, a foxhole radio a yeah crystal so set. that's my so, so this is done over amateur radio, um, and so they had this successful radio concert, you know, lots of headlines in the school newspaper saying aerial concert is the first in collegiate history. So this is where the first college radio station kind of idea comes from uh, for Union College. So it's, it's over amateur radio. And uh, other headlines, ethereal recitals will be given weekly in future. I just, I love these headlines. They're so amazing. Um, and one of the articles said, transmitting the music from a phonograph into the receiver of a wireless telephone and then to amateur radio operators within a radius of 50 miles, members of the Union College Radio Club Thursday gave what is believed to be the first wireless musical concert of an American college organization playing vocal and instrumental records. So to me, this is still college radio, even though it's over amateur radio. And, you know, and I, and I think these are really fun stories. Um, and it's also super interesting that at Union College, these, these call letters to ADD, the amateur station call, those were of a radio po prodigy named Wendell W. King and he had started his own amateur station when he was 12, which is incredible. And he was also the first black student to attend Union for a significant length of time. So again, like these are stories that we want to be telling about the history of college radio, that it's more, there's more going on in these early days than people might recognize. You know, it's more diverse. It's um, as far as like the ways people broadcast, the people who are broadcasting. And King had been involved with amateur radio since 1911. Um, one article said he might have been the most technically proficient student connected with early union radio. He'd already been president of the Troy Amateur Radio Club, 
had served in the Army Signal Corps, and had worked for the radio section of General Electric. So, you know, pretty inspiring stories. Yeah, that's um, really amazing. So that's W Wendell W. King, you said? Yep. Yep. And he was, his calls were to ADD. And, and so, yeah, just like wanting to tell these stories. Um, and then it, the radio club at Union um, kept doing these Thursday night music broadcasts over amateur radio. And then they eventually had an experimental station too. So this is why it's like really hard to do this research because it's like, okay, am I writing about, <laughs> which radio station am I writing about now? Um, so they did broadcast over an experimental station 2XQ that it got a license for in 1919. Um, so that's a broadcast station, mm -hmm. experimental broadcast station. Okay. Yeah. So now it's doing kind of both. Um, it got letters. Amazingly, I, I got to visit Union College and the archives and I got to see their radio scrapbook. So I, I was able to read all sorts of letters. They got letters from listeners who read in to report hearing and enjoying the music transmissions. Um, the stations did stunts. Uh, they outfitted a baby carriage with a radio set. Um, <laughs> amazing photos of that in the archives. Um, they broadcast radio church services. Is, is that only because, is, is, is that to make it mobile? Is that, yeah. you know, that yeah. probably a baby carriage was the uh, easiest thing they could find, I suspect. Yeah, to <laughs> make it. car hadn't yet been invented. <laughs> yep, yep, it's pretty funny. Um, Yes, they did church services over the air, um, playing hymns played over a phonograph, and then also songs by a college quartet. Um, in 1921, they did, I mentioned this earlier, the wireless transmission of the junior prom music. Um, and ahead of before the prom, their student newspaper reported that the music of four Dabney's syncopated orchestra of Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic fame will be heard as far west as Nebraska and by ships far out at sea. And the prom, so the prom went from 10.30 p.m. until 6 a.m. And so that's when they were broadcasting this music, you know, for folks to hear across the land. Um, and so that's also amazing to me to think about these overnight proms and, and radio overnight. So, you know, early, early stories here of college radio. And then they did eventually get, they were eventually at Union, they were one of the first colleges to obtain a limited commercial license to operate a broadcast station. So WRL was issued in March, 1922, and they held that license until 1924. And only a few other stations operating at colleges or universities obtained this type of broadcast license earlier than that. Um, University of Minnesota and University of Wisconsin obtained that type of license in January 1922 and, and Union was in March 1922. So trying to get all the details straight, you know, on all these different types of licenses um, as I do this research. But, you know, the the underlying thing that I think is important is just talking about the activities that were happening and that these were mm -hmm. broadcast no matter what type of station they were on. I think then, that extra context is, is really important, actually, Jennifer, as you've added, right? Because you've kind of taken this, 
I think um, and I'll be I think I'm guilty of making this assumption. You, you sort of I assume it's sort of, uh, you know, geeks in a geeks in a basement somewhere. Right. Or geeks in an attic somewhere. Um, but what I'm hearing is is a far it sounds like far more uh, far more integrated practice into the campus, into campus life. Um, you know, I, and I'm sure, again, that took a while, years, in fact, to to, to take root. But th I think that gives furthermore um, greater reason to accept your proposal to, that uh, the early experiments were true college radio because they it, it was not an isolated experiment you know they may have been experimental because the technology in some ways might have been considered experimental but that it was truly intended to to sort of integrate with the campus community and outside the campus community right to take advantage of the very fact that radio um has loose boundaries as and with alum a campus and with alumni and you know that was really important at haverford college that a lot of the kind of accounting of the station activities in the 1920s talked about, you know, activities and lectures and messages of Haverford College could be heard for thousands of miles in every direction so that alum alumni could stay connected to the school. So yeah, very much so. Um, and on that connections, on that connections tip, um, something that was super exciting for me looking through these scrapbooks at Union College was reading all the letters that came from people at other colleges and other college radio clubs. And, and so I dug into this more and the Union College Radio Club was really actively engaged with other college radio clubs and lots of correspondence in this scrapbook in the 1920s. Um, there was a letter from the CCNY Radio Club at the College of the City of New York and in December 1920, they wrote a letter saying, fellow radio bugs, we were more than pleased to receive your communication on the 14th. Your suggestion interests us very much and we would like to cooperate with you in furthering an intercollegiate radio organization of some sort. So there, there was this interest brewing in making connections. And later in January 1921, uh, there was a letter from a Union College alumnus that said the Union College Club is trying to foster an intercollegiate system of communication by wireless. A large number of schools here in the East have signified a desire to participate in such a schedule and the college here is already installing a more powerful set. So these, you know, these kernels of, of thinking beyond the campus and, you know, think about it. Um, you know, now we have the internet and we can communicate with everybody all over the land immediately. Um, but, you know, people in, in radio clubs through their amateur radio were able to send messages to people thousands of miles away and start building these connections. And, you know, I also saw things in the archives about news sharing, um, that that could be a way to, to quickly get news to other student newspapers too at other college campuses. You are listening to Radio Survivor. The voice you just heard is Jennifer Waits, one of our co-conspirators here at Radio Survivor, but she is uh, enlightening us about some of the very early history of college radio complicating a lot of received history. 
um, bringing in a perspective on amateur radio and and showing how early radio experiments that may have not been strictly broadcast um, probably qualify as college radio because, the, in fact, uh, these folks had audiences and intended to reach an audience and engage the campus community and communities far beyond uh, the boundaries of, of any given campus. I'm Paul Reismandel. Also with us is Eric Klein, and we can be found online at radiosurvivor.com, where the show can be heard as a podcast, as well as on dozens of community and college radio stations around North America. Um, so, Jennifer, uh, that is sort of, the, you've complicated now this history, you know, going back to starting in the late 19th century, well into the early 20th century. Um, and then I think, you know, college radio, it seems, as we as we kind of know it, student-run radio stations, um, seems like took a took a stronger foothold in those years subsequent, right? And part of that is radio takes a stronger foothold, um, basically in 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 the United States. Um, you know, in 1934, we had the creation of the Federal Communications Commission. 1927 is the creation of the Federal Radio Commission. You know, and and it becomes, of course, also uh, more quickly commercialized, right? And large radio networks like um, like uh, NBC. Uh, the national broadcasting company owned by RCA um, begin to really, you know, uh, take hold of the public's imagination and, and radio becomes a popular entertainment as well as a popular communication. But uh, college radio was there afoot, was it not? Yeah, well, so so by the end of the 1920s, a lot of um, a lot of stations left the air that were licensed to colleges. So we had maybe a large number that dwindled. Um, so we weren't left with very many, you know, in these stations. Do you, that... do you know? Do you know why that is? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of changes happening. I mean, I, I suspect maybe the 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 Radio Act of 1927 might might have something to do with it, but I don't yeah. have. I wonder. I wonder if the Great I don't Depression have that history available to me right off the top of my head, unfortunately. And and I wonder if the economy had anything to do with it. Of course, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, as we as we entered the depression a few years later. Yeah. So um, so things were like kind of wild west and you know like at haverford they were broadcasting at a thousand like they could you could hear it a thousand miles in every direction at one point wabq and you know it was kind of crazy and so things got like rained in and um commercial you know large commercial companies were more interested in having stations and the dial was getting crowded and you know people were having to kind of share share that space and so at haverford anyway they were approached by a commercial group who bought the license so a, a station mm -hmm. in philadelphia then then took over and so that was that was sort of a common refrain um that the dial was you know less of these um fewer of these types of stations like existed by the end of the 1920s that were well, there weren't that many that were run by students, but fewer stations at colleges mm -hmm. in general existed when we came to the end of the 1920s. And and then things were pretty quiet. So at I think on a lot of these college campuses, people then kind of folk, people who are interested in radio then focused on amateur radio again and hmm. code classes, teaching Morse code and sending messages to people um, all over the country. 
But then by the late 1930s, students at Brown University came up with a plan to broadcast just to the campus only using this carrier current idea where you're broadcasting using infrastructure of the building as the antennas. So they called them gas pipe networks because, you know, in the dorms, there were gas pipes. And so they were able to kind of use that to uh, get their signal out. And, and the stories about that are very similar to the stories I was telling at the beginning of this episode about these amateur radio operators who were students who were setting up these amateur stations so they could communicate like across the yard or from dorm room to dorm room. That's kind of like what Carrier Current was like starting in the late 1930s, where initially it was students in a dorm who maybe wanted to share their record collection with another friend. And so they set up communication so they could broadcast it to another room. And then that quickly got more organized and, and those students at Brown formed the intercollegiate broadcasting system, which was a college radio, or, well, and is a college radio organization. And they helped teach other people how to build these stations on their college campuses. And, and that really, word of that spread, um, and I was just looking today at an article written in the Saturday Evening Post in 1941 about these stations radiator pipe broadcasters by Eric Barnow and and you know he's talking about you know these college administrators who are hearing these strange sounds on the radio and where are they coming from and it's a it's a very delightful article about the birth of what you know some people call campus radio um some people in another accounting of of the history of that gas the gas pipe networks uh, by Lewis Block, um, he he really sees that as the beginning of college radio. Mm-hmm. The college radio began with carrier current. So again, like I think he wrote his book in 1980, reflecting back on these gas pipe networks that started 1930, late 1930s. Um, but he's another person where I'm like, but what about the 20s, dude? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's very plausible that he didn't have access to any materials. I mean, yeah. you know, as it is, as you know, doing history, it's it's often about it is about finding threads and then pulling on them, and and you can look for a long time, and 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 if you don't know what you're looking for, right, until you until you stumble upon something you didn't expect. Right. You know, I wonder what documentation, you know, I mean, you've worked pretty hard to find this, to find this various documentation. And I suspect at least some of this has been aided by having access to the Internet, even though we're talking about, you know, 100 year old archival materials. Some of this, there are breadcrumbs at the very least available online, even though you've you've then made additional efforts to, say, travel to Schenectady, New York. Right. And, And to follow up on this. But if you know, how did you find that thread even to know to go there? Um, in 1980, uh, some of this research would have simply been, practically speaking, more difficult to do. Yeah. And I mean, and also the history of, of these campus only stations starting the late 30s, carrier current stations is really important. And I think I also want to be, even though I'm kind of like joking at like having a beef with him because he didn't talk about the 20s, um, I think it's, 
This is another story that really isn't told enough about how significant it was that students could create their own stations that didn't have to be licensed by the FCC. Um, and that's an important point, I think, because I, 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 you know, again, um, you know, with the, with the Radio Act of 1934, the licensing of, of radio stations became much more consolidated and I believe much more difficult um, than it had been previously. And so I, I suspect that the, simply getting that authorization in 1920 at Union College was from, from then it would have been the that would have, would have been the Commerce Department is who would have given you that that authorization. The Federal Radio Commission did not exist. The Federal Communications Commission didn't exist. Um, there were probably fewer people looking for radio licenses. That was probably easier to get yeah. than than the hoops that might have needed to be uh, jumped through uh, in order to get a license uh, in nineteen you know thirty five or or later, right? Um, so the fact that there was an ability and a technology to build out a radio station that only required the technical competency um, provided that, you know, and, and, and making it clear that if you, could, if you could build a carrier current radio station, you could build a radio station that could be heard off campus, right? Yeah. But it is, it is, you know, students taking advantage of, you know, sort of, for lack of a better way, putting in a loophole in the law that allows very limited distance uh, transmissions. Um, offhand, I don't know when the rules for carrier current were written into the federal regulations, so I don't know if that's that that's something in in 1934 or not. If that was extant, you know, these things get written in as as time goes on. And today, we 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 consider it under the rubric of Part 15 uh, broadcasting. Part 15, which is really actually a part of the um, uh, of the federal rules, which cover uh, unintended transmissions and interference. So when you when you broadcast under Part 15, what you're really doing is is basically broadcasting something that qualifies as interference. And there's a maximum amount of power that that can be used, or maximum distance it can go, depending on what radio band you're broadcasting in. And that's basically what they're taking advantage of is is that as a loophole, they may emit a signal. Uh, that doesn't go very far. Um, and at some point, I know the rules were updated specifically for colleges um, saying that that they could uh, broadcast provided the uh, signal stayed on campus. And it's, it, it was fun kind of looking back at this 1941 article. I'd, I'd seen it before, but looking at it again today, and it talks about how on some of the campuses, the faculty have kind of like really kind of, you know, are buying into the station and have even used some of the programming. Like there's some, you know, classical music programs that might have been assigned by a music appreciation class, um, you know, which I thought that was interesting, like, you know, giving a little glimpse of the programming and, and also that, um, that there were things, there were things that some of the carry current stations did that might have been kind of, you know, on the edge. So the Harvard station did an interview with a burlesque star on the art of the striptease. <laughs> um, so again, it's kind of breaking some of these stereotypes. Um, you know, another research question that's been asked of me is about the origins of freeform, and and I like to think that some of that is with it that that freeform programming, experimental programming, where you're 
playing a bunch of different genres or doing weird things on the air, reading poetry. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of that was happening in college radio and it's impossible to research every single station, but I love hearing mm -hmm. these little kernels of things that, you know, in 1941, there were campus radio stations interviewing burlesque stars. So, <laughs> you know, it's not just, it's not just the music to study by or the lectures or, you know, some of the things that you might have expected. So I, I hope to find more and more of these studies as I find more stations to research. And, you know, and if any listeners know about student run stations in the 1920s that I don't know about, I, I hope that you'll reach out to us because, you know, I, I love, I love uncovering more and more examples of, of what was happening at that time. And it's a very, very laborious process. Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Tell us the stories that you know about, about college radio history. I don't think, uh, I don't think there's any story we don't want to hear. I know. I'll go, and, so I'll go out on that limb. And I want to, so I want to flash to today a little bit. Um, last week, we talked about the low power FM opportunity coming up starting November 1st, 2023 in the United States. And I know there are some college stations who are, going to apply and looking into that but you know want to put that out there into the ether as they said back then so an opportunity <laughs> to get a a, a relatively easy uh, application for a licensed radio, fm radio station operating at 100 watts maximum so intended to serve a relatively small area but a campus certainly can certainly serve a campus very well serve a small town serve uh, many neighborhoods within a larger city or a metropolitan area and um that window opens up and by window we mean there's this defined period in which the fcc will accept applications for one of these stations and it is only during this period that you can submit these applications. So you need to be prepared and it is coming up. I, I did not place the numbers in front of me. It's in November. Yeah, and, and Radio Survivor has done uh, two recent episodes. You can find us online at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, go over to the podcast tab. And uh, twice uh, in the last uh, few weeks, we have talked about both the technical requirements or, or things you should be aware of if you're if you're looking forward to low power fm or if you're interested in applying as well as um our most recent episode prior to this one we had a a, a wonderful at length interview with the with the expert on low power fm who wrote the book low power fm for dummies about um about uh, applying for and building and sustaining low power fm radio stations yeah thanks to sharon scott of art fm and which is also WXOX LP in Louisville, Kentucky, who who uh, whipped out this low power FM radio for dummies book, right. you know, just in time for this application window. And of course, we here at Radio Survivor, we're always excited if you out there in the listening area, in the, in the listening audience, um, have this uh, desire or yearning to apply for low power FM radio and get it done. But, you know, we are also excited about sitting back and and listening to what other people accomplish and as as audience as members of an audience who love radio which obviously all of our listeners are in that audience like this new low power fm window is an exciting uh it's an exciting moment 
in the history of radio in the United States, and it's coming up. It's coming up again, and we're very excited about all of the new radio stations that are going to be popping up. And we and we always have to emphasize that if you're interested at all in putting a a non-commercial, very important non-commercial community or college radio station on the air um, with Low Power FM, now is the time to mobilize because we do not know if or when another window opportunity will will happen. And part of this is purely practical. There's only so many spaces on the dial, even for these uh, small, low-powered stations. Eventually, the dial fills up in most communities. And so it, I can go out, again, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, in the event that there is another low-power FM window, it's unlikely to happen again for another decade, because that's about, <laughs> the first one was in t the year 2000, the second one was in the year 2013, it is now 2023. So it is probably a decade in the future, and there will be even f fewer uh, licenses, fewer frequency opportunities available at that point. So now is the time to mobilize. The window opens November 1st. We have lots and lots of resources of, uh, on our website at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, you can click on our LPFM menu or look at the last couple of podcasts that we've done on the subject if you want to learn more and kind of dive in. It is not too late, but the time to uh, motivate is now. Yeah. yeah. It, oh, yes. And similarly, if you want to dive more into college radio history, we have a college radio section on the website. Um, I, I, I uh, tour stations all over the country. You can read my tours at Union College and other places. The most recent tours have an extra hefty dose, uh, dose of college radio history. I want to wish everybody a happy college radio day as well. And I was excited that the three of us were able to come together in celebration of college radio day on this episode too. When is yeah. college radio day? October 6th. This is the 13th college radio day. World college radio day is what it's called now. So stations, College radio stations, campus radio stations from all over the world are celebrating. There will be a simulcast where every, I think every hour, a different radio station will be highlighted and, and that will be on the College Radio Day website. We'll have links in our show notes. And, you know, it's really a time when stations um, come together to remind the world that college radio is still alive and well and interesting. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, uh, you've been listening to Radio Survivor here on the radio stations where we are broadcast or perhaps as a podcast online at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, all the resources uh, mentioned today and also all of the other resources are all on that website, radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you if you want to email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Com. On behalf of Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits, uh, Jennifer who produced today's episode, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.